Uh, let's ask God uh, to help us understand his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we've been encouraged uh, tonight to hear Michael testify about how you called him to yourself and how you opened his eyes to see Jesus' glory and trust him. We pray now as we gather around your word, you would open our eyes to see Jesus' glory in his gospel, that we also might trust him and that trusting him we will grow in understanding of his will so that we can live the lives of those who love him, who love him by doing his will. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, during the week I was thinking about this passage and about how hard it is to imagine what it would be like to be blind. Uh, so, in the interest of being well prepared for you, I resolved to give blindness a try and drive to the staff meeting along Grimshaw Street, the Greensboro Bypass and the Ring Road with my eyes shut. Now, of course, you don't believe me. And you don't believe me because I'm still here. Being blind, being totally in the dark, unable to orient yourself to the world around you is disabling and dangerous. If in reality I'd suddenly lost my sight, I'd do what you'd do. I'd stay put and call for help. And what if we all suddenly lost, say, the sight of the sun? If we're all plunged into darkness? Well, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Confusion would replace confidence, fear would take the place of peace, and cold death would extend over all. To be totally in the dark is in the end to know uncertainty, misery, and death. But to be in the light is life, safety and joy. Light is good. Seeing the light, not being blind, living in the light, not being in the dark, is good, so much better than the darkness. So when Jesus says he comes as light into the world, why don't all embrace him? And if all don't, if some are still in darkness, does that contradict Jesus' claim to be the light of the world? Or does it mean that God has failed in his purpose in sending the Lord Jesus to us as the light of the world? In chapter 9, as you've heard, we see that while some embrace the light, not all do. There's the man born blind who moves from one not seeing to one who sees, more who moves from sight to insight about Jesus. And then there are the Pharisees who move from seeing to blindness, or better, from a refusal to see to a deadly darkness. And we hear at the end what Jesus says of these differing responses in relation to the purpose of God in sending him into the world. So let's pick up the story in verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples are asking Jesus a theological question, and we can sometimes think in the same way, can't we? I mean, something's bad has happened to this man, in this case, the blind man and his family, and therefore we think they must have done something wrong. And of course there's a seed of truth in that, isn't there? While not all or even most sickness or misfortune is due to the sufferer's sin, 
we know that some cases uh, the illness does follow people's actions. The user of amphetamines who develops schizophrenia, the drunk driver who wraps his car around a tree and ends up a quadriplegic. Oh, sometimes the parents' actions can affect the unborn baby as well, can't they? I mean, the children of heroin addicts have a tough time. And the rabbis of Jesus' day even believed that, well, the action of the baby in the womb could be sinful and the baby could be punished for it. So the disciples' inclusion of the man himself who sinned this man or his parents is not evidence of a belief in reincarnation, just their awareness of contemporary opinion. So who sinned? To this theologically speculative question, Jesus gives a surprising answer. It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is a surprising answer because in this individual case, Jesus is certain about the lack of sin as a cause. There's no karma here. And it's surprising because Jesus is also certain about the purpose of this sickness. This happened so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. Now, it's hard enough for us to know the purpose of any event in our own lives, but Jesus says he knows the purpose of this blindness in the life of this stranger for certain. Now, how? How can he say that with confidence? Well, it's because he is the one sent from God who does the work of God, and now is the time for doing that work. He'll display the work of God in the blind man's life. There's a hint here that God may have a purpose for hard things in our lives, which becomes clear only much later, long after we've asked all the why questions at the time of God's choosing. It's a hint worth reflecting on, but it is only a hint. It's left undeveloped. Rather, Jesus repeats his claim that he is the light of the world the one who drives out the darkness and brings life and joy. And having said this, he backs up his claim with an extraordinary act. He initiates contact with the blind man, a man living in darkness. And before the blind man even thinks to ask for help, Jesus has smeared a muddy paste over his eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off. Now, there is some evidence that Spit was used in healing procedures in some of the surrounding cultures, although the rabbis generally frowned on it because it had suggestions of magic. We're not sure why Jesus uses spit here, but one thing is certain, isn't it? Having a muddy paste smeared all over your eyes is a really good reason to go and wash. The initiative is all of Jesus, isn't it? There's not a mention of the man's faith. With the mud, Jesus is making it easy for the man to do what he is told, making certain that he will do it. And the man does, goes and washes, and he comes back seeing. The power that Jesus shows here is extraordinary power. This man who was blind from birth comes back seeing straight away. It's so extraordinary, such a big and unexpected change that in 
that at first we see in verses 8 and 9 that his neighbours are actually unsure it was him. Some say, yes, it's him. So others say, no, no, it's like him. But of course the blind man has no doubt. I am the man. Out of curiosity, I had a look on the web to see if there was any information about the recovery of sight after being born blind. Back in 2006, there was an article by some researchers at the Massachusetts Institute titled Vision Following Extended Congenital Blindness. It was a report about a 32-year-old woman who had had congenital cataracts, that is, uh, an opaque lens at birth, removed when she was 12. At one level, it was quite encouraging. 20 years later, she had not bad functional sight. But it also brought out how great Jesus' action here is. You see, this poor girl had lost the sight of one eye in the operation, now had to wear extremely thick glasses, which still left her very short-sighted, and had taken several months after the operation to be able to recognise common household objects and the faces of her family. She'd needed an extended period of learning and in unfamiliar places she still had to ask strangers for help and direction. Not so the man born blind whom Jesus has healed. He comes back seeing well straight away. Jesus brings sight to the blind, light into the darkness. As you can imagine, such a work created quite a stir and curiosity about what had happened. Because John wants us to understand that this healing is a sign, something that points beyond itself to something greater, in this case, that points beyond itself to show us who Jesus is and what he does, John traces out for us in the rest of the chapter two responses to Jesus bringing sight to the blind light into darkness. So let's look at the first of the responses, that is, that of the local religious authorities, the Pharisees, who come into the action at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? These very religious people move from some initial doubt in their attitude to Jesus in verse 16 to united certainty, as we'll see in verse 24, this man is a sinner, and then to complete rejection, as you heard in verse 34, of any who would challenge their judgment on Jesus. It's worth thinking about the way they respond to the evidence about Jesus, at the reasons they give for turning their back on his light. Worth thinking about because perhaps you share their reasonings, or perhaps you've encountered it. We see their first reason in verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. What are they saying? They're saying that Jesus doesn't live up to our standards. Needing, that is, mix things, things together, as in this case, saliva and dirt to make mud, was actually one of the 39 things expressly forbidden on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees are saying, we know what pleases God and what doesn't. 
We're in a position to determine right and wrong and Jesus just doesn't measure up. People do the same thing today. You know, they apply their predetermined test to Jesus and find him wanting. For example, a genuinely spiritual man or a genuinely good man. Oh, he wouldn't speak of judgment and hell, of which Jesus does speak. Or he wouldn't say he was the only way to God or that people who disagreed with him would be judged and condemned, or he wouldn't say, made all the apostles male. There are lots of tests, and the outcome of them all is the same. We can't recognise Jesus as the light because he doesn't meet our standards, and we know our standards are absolutely right. Because they know they're right, they then employ a second strategy to avoid recognising Jesus. They challenge the evidence. The Jews didn't believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son? You see, the Pharisees have plainly learned from past experience that well, this is the kind of thing, you know, being blind and then claiming to be able to see that people routinely lie about or get confused about. Other people, unlike them, cannot be trusted to be able to speak truthfully and accurately about what's happened in their lives, so they need to be challenged. Oh, and they then create an atmosphere that suppresses the truth, verse 22 threatening to throw people out of the synagogue. They create an atmosphere that makes people fearful of talking about what they know. But even if, as in this case, the evidence can't be faulted, they still have another ploy, another ploy for those determined not to believe, who have already made up their minds. We see it. Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he's a sinner, I do not know one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? You see this other ploy, verse 26, never accept the explanation given. Always challenge the explanation given and insist on another. Why? Well, it's because you know the explanation given can't be the right one. And so you have to keep searching for the one that fits what you know to be right. Jesus is a sinner. He's not from God. So he must have used magic. Tell us how he did it. You actually see this with people's response to the witness to the resurrection because they know the explanation the apostles give for their experience. You know, that they believe in Jesus' resurrection because the living Jesus convinced them he was alive, because they know that that explanation can't be true. Well, they keep looking for another. And doing that, they actually become wonderfully gullible. They come to blame the apostles' experience on magic mushrooms or on the belief that the ancients, who had more experience of death than most of us, made a mistake in this case and that Jesus wasn't really dead. In fact, so sure they are right that any alternate explanation is preferable simply because the apostles can't be right. And if someone still persists in not telling you what you want to hear, invoke authority as they do. Verse 29, we are just following Moses. And then 
when all else fails, dismiss the messenger as either bad or mad. Verse 34, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? If the evidence stacks up and the person speaking to insists on drawing from it conclusions that are both uncomfortable and you know to be wrong, well, he or she must be a bad person, morally incompetent, a fool, or someone just born with those gullible believer's genes. The Pharisees can treat the evidence like this, <laughs> the man standing before them, because they know they are right. They see things properly. They can't see the truth of Jesus because they won't see, for they already know there is nothing to see. Convinced they're right, they won't listen to Jesus, who has already challenged them to see that Moses spoke of him. Already challenged in chapter 7 their use of the Sabbath law to dismiss him. Insisting they see, turning their back on the light, they have become blind, unable to see, enveloped in darkness. And that's a miserable place to be, isn't it? Here is a man born blind who can now see, but there is no joy, just irritation. And it's a dangerous place to be. For when you've convinced yourself that the beloved son is a sinner, that the one sent to speak the truth from God is a liar, that light is darkness, where can you turn for sight? And so let me ask this evening, if you are not yet a believer, are you open to the light? Here's a test. Are you copying the Pharisees' strategies when you meet the evidence for Jesus, say, for his resurrection, that great vindication of Jesus' truthfulness. So, for example, do you just dismiss the apostles' testimony because you know it just can't happen? Or do you challenge the evidence, refusing to believe the Gospels are eyewitness testimony despite the historical proof? Perhaps... You've become good at creating an intimidatory atmosphere in your home or workplace so that people won't talk to you about Jesus. Maybe you're insisting on the alternate explanations for the apostles' experience, no matter how implausible. Or you could be invoking the authorities. Oh, how many Nobel laureates are Christians as a substitute for really grappling with the evidence? In the end, you get so irritated, you just brand all, your, brand all the Christians you know as irrational. Well, ask yourself, could it be that you aren't convinced because you don't want to be convinced? Are you open to the light? Well, it's the blind man's witness to what has happened to him and his growing insight into what it means that shows up the Pharisees' reasons for what they are, excuses to bolster their determination not to acknowledge the son. So let's look at his response. While he's clear, verse 11, about what has happened to him, at the start he doesn't know much about Jesus. He's just the man called Jesus, whose whereabouts... He doesn't know. But as he's pushed by the Pharisees to explain how he has come to see, 
His understanding of who Jesus must be develops and strengthens. And so, verse 17, he says, he is a prophet, someone sent from God. Verse 25, he says, oh, look, though I'm no theological teacher or a scholar to enter into your debates, I can be sure that Jesus is powerful to act and that his actions are good. Finally, in verses 30 to 33, he expresses his conclusion about Jesus and his wonder at the failure of the Pharisees to believe. He expresses that conclusion in a way which should change their minds. You see, the Pharisees, verse 29, have said of Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. Verses 30 to 33, the blind man points them to the obvious answer. Verse 31, there's a premise, a starting point they can all agree on. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshipper of God and does his will, God listens to him. He then follows, verse 32, with an observation they can't deny. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And that's true in the Old Testament. There is no record of a blind man having his sight restored. And that starting point, that premise and that observation lead to the conclusion, verse 33, that they ought to accept. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. You see, Jesus has been telling the truth about himself. He is from God and they should recognise that. But this is the point at which they decide that the blind man's the problem. <laughs> and that they can now answer the disciples' question, who sinned? Well, you, blind man, were steeped in sin at birth. So we don't need to listen to you. They remove him because the dramatic change in his life is now not a cause of thankfulness to God. It's just unsettling, making them angry. And the blind man finds, like many believers, as we have heard tonight from Michael, that there is a cost to believing in Jesus, a cost in even entertaining the thought that Jesus could be telling the truth, where the guardians of the social consensus reject Jesus. But this man who was once blind is not left alone. It was Jesus, remember, who started all this, and Jesus now seeks him out. And the blind man's considered conclusion on his experience that Jesus is from God leads him on to true faith, to true sight, to live in reality, enlightened by the light of the world. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Notice the blind man doesn't say, what are you talking about? No, he says, who is he? He's not asking for explanation, but identity. He understands the term. He's heard the prophet Daniel read in the synagogue. He just wants to know to whom it applies. But you and I might need a bit of explanation. The Son of Man was an exalted figure spoken of in Daniel chapter 7. Someone who on coming to the Ancient of Days was entrusted with authority, glory and sovereign power. 
All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. He is an exalted ruler. And with the coming of his rule, read on in Daniel 7 and you'll see God's people come to know peace and safety as they share in his reign. Now Jesus has used this term earlier in the Gospels to speak of himself. To speak of himself as the one, verse 13 of chapter 3, who has come down from heaven, who actually brings God's truth. Oh, chapter 5, the one who's been given authority over all to judge. The one again in chapter 3 who would be lifted up on the cross to save. The one, chapter 6, who would give eternal life by giving his life. Who is he? Well, Jesus replies, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. You have now seen him. Rich and powerful words for a man born blind. And Jesus says, the son of man, it's me. And the blind man sees in truth. He doesn't just see Jesus, the native of Nazareth, an upstart carpenter, the son of Galilean peasants. And he doesn't just see Jesus, the itinerant teacher or wandering miracle worker. He sees the Son of Man. I believe, Lord. Your work in my life, your seeking me out, has convinced me. You are the one you say you are. And he worships him. Alone of all the people who deal with Jesus in John's Gospel, he responds rightly to Jesus' reality. He sees. He sees one who is I am before Abraham. He sees the one to whom the Father has entrusted all judgment so that all may honour the Son even as they honour the Father. He sees and so responds rightly with worship. Why does he see? Because he let the sign speak. He followed it where it pointed and he believed the word Jesus spoke. We see two very different responses to the light of the world in these verses. Responses not just to words but to a mighty sign. And Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who, may, who see may become blind. Jesus coming as light into the world works judgment, dividing humanity into the seeing and the blind because there is no neutrality possible when it comes to Jesus. He is God. Over all his creation, all must deal with him. Now elsewhere, Jesus makes clear that he was not sent, did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. And again, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus came into the world to save the world, but judgment, judgment on those who turn from the light because they love darkness rather than light, who exclude themselves from salvation by rejecting the word Jesus speaks, is an inevitable outcome of the coming of the light. Because if you do not come to the light, you stay in darkness. It's an inevitable outcome. And it is a false, and it is a foreseen consequence of the coming of the Son of Man. And as a foreseen consequence, it is also part of the purpose for which the Father sent the Son into the world. The Son comes to humble the human pride that thinks it can deal with God on its own terms. The pride that thinks the creature can dictate to the Creator and escape his judgment on their sin. The failure of all to respond to the light is not a failure in the purpose of God for his Son. Jesus coming as light into the world works judgment. And the gospel of Jesus coming, this word you hear tonight works judgment, for it is by his gospel that Jesus sheds his light abroad in the world today. So let me ask you tonight, what is the judgment the gospel of Jesus is working in your life? What's the judgment the gospel of Jesus is working in your life? Are you the blind who see? Because you have come to confess Jesus as he is, the glorious Son of Man. That is, have you accepted Jesus' verdict on humanity, which we heard in John 8, that in sinning you and I are slaves to sin, in believing the devil's lies that God will not keep his word and that we can be like God, that you and I have been ensnared in death and darkness, and that of ourselves we do not know God, and that all our knowing is directed by our belonging to the world, by our rejection of and disobedience to God, so that we are unable to find God of ourselves, unable to judge God, and have judgment and eternal death await us. And confessing this is true of yourself, coming from darkness to light, you have turned to Jesus, the Son sent into the world to be the light of the world, believed his word, the word he speaks of us and of himself, of himself, that he is, I am, come from the Father to save by his death by being lifted up on the cross. And believing this word, do you abide in his word and by following him walk in the light of life? Are you the blind brought to see by the gracious work of Jesus? Or are you the seeing who are blind? That is, you reject Jesus' verdict on yourself and your humanity. You say, I'm not enslaved to sin or ensnared in death. You are confident you can find your own way without Jesus, establish your own truth apart from what God has said of himself in his Son, confident that you have your own light to guide you through and to life so that you 
don't need to listen to Jesus and depend on him. Are you the seeing who are blind? At the end of our passage, Jesus warns those who say they see, who trust in their own judgment, who think that what Jesus has said of humanity does not apply to them. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And in the way they ask the question, it's obvious that they expect the answer, no. But Jesus says, if you were blind, that is, if you actually recognise that you're in the darkness, you would not be in sin, you would have no sin, no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And the word is actually sin, your sin, your sinfulness remains. Jesus warns them and all who, in a sense, trust in their own seeing, that while they insist they can see, that they are capable of making their own judgments about right and wrong without reference to God, they remain in their sin, abide in their sinfulness. Turning their back on the light, rejecting Jesus' word, leaves them only in darkness, a darkness from which they cannot free themselves, For Jesus is the light, the only light of the world. His warning is a plea to them and to you to change, to abandon your confidence in your own judgment. For no one is in more danger than the blind man or woman who thinks he or she can see. And those who are in darkness but can't recognise it, can't turn to the light. What is the judgment, the coming of Jesus to you in his gospel is working in your life? And remember, there is no neutrality. You are either coming to see by trusting Jesus or moving further into the darkness. And if that sounds stark, unsettling, especially if you're a believer, unsettling to think that the gospel you share works the judgment of God, remember, it only does so because Jesus comes as light into a dark world where our whole race is enslaved to the devil and his lies, to sin and death. And he alone is the light of the world and light is good. And he is graciously, as we heard again tonight, opening the eyes of the blind to let us see his glory. He came to save and is calling all to follow him so and so know the light that brings life. Those who know their blindness can ask and he will give them sight. Though working the judgment of God on human pride, the gospel is good news, good news of light and love and gracious gift of life. The gospel is good news and you will know that if you can humble yourself to believe Jesus. And if you're a believer, as you think of your witness to the light of Jesus in this world, think of this blind man. In the face of determined efforts to challenge what he said, to dismiss both him and his experience, he just kept testifying to the truth, what he'd experienced, that he could see now And Jesus had given him sight. He didn't have to win all the arguments or answer all the objections. He just had to be true 
And Jesus didn't abandon him all the work he started in his life. And as he listened to Jesus and trusted him, he kept growing in his understanding. Now isn't that the way forward for every one of us whose lives have been changed by Jesus, who have come to walk in his light by trusting him, who know that through trusting him we've been forgiven, have been given God's spirit, have been adopted as God's children. We speak of what we know. We don't have to win all the arguments or deal with every objection. We just have to be true to what Jesus has done for us. And Jesus won't abandon the work he has started in us as we face opposition. No, he's with us. And as we follow him, that is, as we listen to him and trust what he says, well, ours is the light of life. And ours is his light to share, that life-giving light. And remember that even as you know the gospel works judgment, that light is good. It is the light of life. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that we would hear what your word says about us, the trusting in ourselves, relying on our own wisdom. We are in darkness, the darkness of lies and death, enslaved to sin. And gracious God, help us also hear what our Lord Jesus says of himself, that he is the light of the world, and those who trust him and follow him will know the light of life. Help us to know that for ourselves. And we pray that walking in his light, we would become light a light shining in a dark place that would direct all who meet us to our saving Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.